This is the Bible in one year, day 360. How to handle money. The day after Christmas, many of us may feel rather out of pocket. But this issue does not only arise around Christmas time. Most of us have to deal with money in some way every day of our lives. But we prefer not to talk about it in church. However, Jesus talked about money a great deal. The Bible has a lot to say about it. Money matters. It matters to us and it matters to God. How should you handle money? Proverbs 31 A wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. Prioritize relationships over money. Relationships matter far more than money. For example, all the money in the world cannot compensate for an unhappy marriage. On the other hand, anyone who has a happy marriage lacks nothing of value. A wife of noble character who can find? She's worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. As the writer of Proverbs extols the virtues of a wife of noble character, he begins with a number of areas of her life that relate directly or indirectly to finance. She's a great example of someone who has the right attitude to money. As John Wesley said, Earn all you can. Save all you can. Give all you can. First, earn all you can. She's hard-working and diligent in earning a living. She gets up early and provides food for her family. She's a good steward. She invests her money wisely. She trades profitably. Second, save all you can. She enjoys her work and the good things of life. She saves some of her earnings. She puts money aside. Third, give all you can. She's generous. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. Generous giving is the appropriate response to God's generosity and to the needs of others. It's the way to break materialism. Lord, help me to be a good steward of everything you entrust to me. May I always be generous, especially to the poor and needy. New Testament, Revelation 18 After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal, for all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries.
Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen, I am not a widow, I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day, her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe! Woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon! In one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes any more. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city! dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Do not put your trust in money. In the Bible, there's no ban on making money, saving it, and enjoying the good things of life. What is warned against is selfish accumulation, an unhealthy obsession with money, or putting your trust in riches. This leads to perpetual insecurity and takes you away from God. Money is not a neutral, impersonal medium of exchange. Jesus said you cannot serve both God and mammon. Mammon was the god of wealth in Carthage. Money has all the characteristics of a god. It seems to offer security, freedom, power, influence, status, and prestige. It's capable of inspiring devotion and single-minded preoccupation. Yet, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it, our hearts have room only for one all-embracing devotion, and we can only cleave to one Lord. In this passage, John is given a vision of an event that must have seemed inconceivable to his readers, the fall of Babylon the Great. In the immediate context, this is a prophecy of an event that will not take place for another 320 years, the overthrow of the Roman Empire in AD 410. When John was writing, the empire seemed invulnerable. It was at the height of its powers. It was enjoying peace and security. 
yet John sees that the characteristics of the city were the seeds of its own downfall. Babylon here also represents any power that sets itself up apart from God. John highlights a series of fatal weaknesses that lie behind any society's downfall. First, rampant evil. She's become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit. Second, endemic promiscuity. All the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her. Third, excessive luxuries. The merchants of the earth grow rich with her excessive luxuries. It is probably her great riches that led to arrogance. Fourth, human trafficking and slaves. Their terrible traffic in human lives. John appears to be pointing out that slaves are not mere carcasses to be bought and sold as property, but are human beings. In this emphatic position at the end of the list, this is more than just a comment on the slave trade. It's a comment on the whole list of cargoes. It suggests the inhuman brutality, the contempt for human life on which the whole empire's prosperity and luxury rested. Today, human trafficking and the resurgence of slavery with millions of modern-day slaves, points to something desperately wrong with our society. Riches, splendor, and luxury are transient. They come and they go. John warns the people of God not to be contaminated by the sins of Babylon. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins. The glories of ancient Rome may have long passed, but this challenge and message are as relevant to us today as they were then. Lord, keep my heart from arrogance and all the other evils that so often can go with relative wealth. Help us as the church to do all we can to fight against human trafficking and modern-day slavery. Thank you that while great empires come and go, the word of the Lord endures forever. Old Testament, Nehemiah 5-7 Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, We and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, We have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of the daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless, because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind, and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, You are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them, and said, As far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews, who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people, only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet, because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses, 
and also the interest you're charging them. One percent of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, "In this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions any one who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied." At this, the whole assembly said, "Amen," and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his thirty-second year, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took forty shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, a hundred and fifty Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry. Were prepared for me, and every ten days an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. Nehemiah chapter six. When the word came to Sambalat. Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message: Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply: I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his assistant to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, "It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt." And therefore, you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem: There is a king in Judah. Now, this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. I sent him this reply: Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. 
One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, Let us meet in the house of God inside the temple, and let us close the temple doors, because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, Should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet Noadiah, and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the twenty-fifth of Elul, in fifty-two days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence, because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also, in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah son of Arah, and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshalem son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds, and then telling him what I said, and Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. Nehemiah chapter 7 after the wall had been rebuilt, and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. I said to them, The gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, make them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. Set an example in handling money. Nehemiah was a leader who set a superb example in handling money. Sooner or later, most of us will go through times of financial difficulty and lack of resources, either in our own personal lives or in our churches. What do you do in these situations? Nehemiah was facing such a situation. Some of the people did not have enough food to stay alive. Others had to mortgage their fields and homes. Still others had to borrow money to pay their taxes. What can we learn from Nehemiah's example? First, he thought about it very carefully. I pondered in my mind. When facing a financial crisis, it's not wise to rush into hasty solutions. It needs careful thought. Second, he called a meeting. Some meetings are at best a waste of time and at worst counterproductive. However, some meetings are important and necessary. Nehemiah had the wisdom to know the difference between these two kinds of meetings. In chapter 6, he refused to meet with his opponents, who were scheming to harm him, despite being asked five times. However, here, Nehemiah calls a meeting. He tells the people that what they're doing is not right. They should not be charging interest. Let the exacting of usury stop. 
he orders them to give back the fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses, and also the usury you are charging them. The meeting was successful. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything from them. We will do as you say. The people did as they promised. Third, and most important, he set an example in his own life. First, personal integrity. Out of his reverence for God, Nehemiah did not act like the earlier governors who'd placed heavy burdens of taxation on the people and allowed their assistants to lord it over them. Second, modest lifestyle. Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. Third, no personal gain. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because the demands were heavy on these people. Fourth, generosity to others. Furthermore, a 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Fifth, single-minded hard work. I devoted myself to the work on this wall. He refused to be put off by the threats of his opponents who were trying to frighten him. Instead, he prayed, Now strengthen my hands. Nehemiah finished what he'd started. Many people know how to start things, but often they lack what Pippa's father used to call carry-through. Nehemiah had the stickability to complete what he had begun. The success of the project was the perfect answer to the critics. So the war was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Lord, give me wisdom in how to handle money. Help me to set an example in my own personal life, to live a life of integrity with no preoccupation with personal gain, and a modest lifestyle, hard work, and generosity to others. Pippa adds, Looking at Proverbs 31, I feel rather inadequate when I read about this do-it-all-have-it-all-be-it-all woman. Actually, I don't think we have to be all these things. What really matters is our relationship with God and doing what he's called us to do.